Caregivers have one of the hardest jobs. They're overworked, underpaid, and rarely thanked. But for many, it's rewarding work. If they don't have someone who's their voice, what's going to happen? I mean, it is a major surgery and it is rare, but these complications do happen. That's caregiver Marisol Sierra. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, Director of Marketing and Communications for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, and your host for this edition of The Journey Continues. Marisol joins us for this episode of The Journey Continues to share her experience as a caregiver in both her personal and professional lives. Hi, Marisol. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do for work? Yes, I work for a dialysis center for Cineas Medical Care. I've been working in the dialysis field for 16 years. I kind of play a lot of roles. (laughs) Mainly, I am my patient's advocate and educator. I am the administrative secretary, and I also do um, education with the CKD community, which is before you start dialysis with the nephrologist. Okay. Wow, that's interesting. So... Is it ever difficult to manage your emotions when you're working with patients um, facing chronic illness? It wasn't before because I didn't actually meet my partner um, till I was already nine years into the dialysis world. So in working with kidney failure patients all day, how did you feel when your partner was diagnosed or was he already diagnosed before you met? No, um, he was diagnosed after. Well, I found out after and it was something I wasn't expecting. Never in my wildest imagination did I think I would end up with a dialysis patient, especially knowing all the challenges that they face. Right, right. What's your partner Eldon like? Tell us a little bit about him. So he is an amazing man, to say the least. Very, very patient. Um, something I, I'm still learning. <laughs> um, he's a Cook County Sheriff. He's been working for the Sheriff's Department for over 23 years. And um, actually, the last um, 10 he was on dialysis and then, um, you know, the transplant journey began. Wow. 10 years on dialysis. That's a long time. Well, he was actually on dialysis six years, um, but he's been transplanted going on four years. Oh, great. Wonderful. Wonderful. So when, how did your relationship change when you shifted from just Eldon's partner to Eldon's partner and caregiver? What was that transition like? Um, It was fairly quickly, you know, we were talking for a while and then, you know, I I found out about his um, kidney failure and at that point I already knew the man and he was just such an amazing person. I mean, he would be on dialysis, but he was always there willing to help someone else, even at his weakest. So at that point I was already all in. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing father, amazing son, uncle. Um, His entire life, he did for others and kind of put his own health on the back burner, which ended him in dialysis. Wow. So that must have been pretty hard for you. How did you feel seeing him um, 
like you mentioned, being weaker or being not feeling well? I actually try to not treat him as one of my patients. <laughs> um, I tried to remember that he was my partner. It didn't stop me from worrying or asking him how he was feeling. And sometimes I would go behind his back and ask his healthcare providers, which I knew being in the dialysis field, um, how he was, how his vitals were, how his labs were. How did the skills you learned at Fresenius translate when you became a caregiver at home? Well, I personally feel that it was preparing me for the journey that I was about to uh, walk with Eldon. I've always educated the patients to ask questions, not to be afraid to ask any questions and to fight. You know, if one door shuts, you go to the next always educating them and the importance of their diet and their fluid restriction and their compliance on dialysis. So I think it prepared me to know that what he was doing was keeping him stable. He, he was very compliant to his dialysis treatments. He never missed in six years. He um, would always make it up if something with work came up. He kept all his transplant appointments, um, all his access appointments. So he was very compliant. And I saw the difference in him never being hospitalized. And, you know, I mean, he was pretty stable. Wow. That's very impressive. That's difficult to do, I'm sure, for a lot of patients. So it sounds like he's a pretty independent guy. What did caregiving look like on a day-to-day basis for you? (laughs) Well, he would try and fight me on it, to say the least, (laughs) especially his diet. Um, I think that was one of the most challenging for us. Um, Him being a sheriff, he would, his shift would change a lot. He would not really have time to eat a good meal. So he was used to just picking something up, fast food, which is horrible for anybody, let alone someone in, you know, renal failure. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest challenge was trying to prep his meals so that he would enjoy them, but not cutting out everything he loved. So we compromised to him having two meals a week that were fast food opposed to every night. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good compromise, I think, for Instead of, uh, yeah, every single meal being out, you've got something to look forward to then. Exactly. Yeah. I know when he was transplanted, he had a big scare. Can you tell us kind of what happened with the transplant and post-transplant? Yes. So he actually, two days after his transplant, he coded, not to get into like all the things that led up to it. There was a lot of maybe it was this, maybe it was that. But to this day, here we are three years in and, you know, they haven't really said what it was, but he ended up coding right in front of me. That, to say the least, is a moment that I would never forget or get over. You know, he was so strong the entire time and to see him vulnerable and intubated was definitely not a complication that neither one of us was expecting. 
Yeah, yeah. And for the listener who might not be um, as aware, what does coding mean? To code is where you flatline, your heart stop, pretty much you're dead. They have to revive you. So incredibly scary stuff. Yes. What was that like for you? For me, pure shock and fear. I, I couldn't... I think at the point I kind of like shut down and I couldn't remember anything that I knew. <laughs> My 16 years in the medical field just, you know, flew out the window when you see someone you love code. And then it kicked in and, you know, all the questions started and, you know, the doctors at one point were just like, we really have nothing to tell you. And I'm like, that's unacceptable. You will tell me something. And, and that's where I believe... Coming from the medical field and working with nephrologists and with nurses and social workers, um, I was able to switch off my loved one role and turn on a different role, which was the caregiver, Mm -hmm. asking questions, what's next. I would observe things that they didn't observe and I would bring it to their attention. And I know at at one point I became a nightmare to them, but I really didn't care. (laughs) Yeah. You're stepping in and being an advocate when he doesn't have a voice. Exactly. That's exactly what I had to do. Yeah. Wow. So how did your role change post-transplant from, you mentioned making his meals. So for, so he was following his dialysis diet. How did that shift post-transplant, post-coding, all of that? So after um, the transplant and he was stable enough to be discharged home, he was in a lot of pain. And it wasn't the incision of the transplant. It was more the compressions to bring him back, the CPR that they had to perform. So he had to walk a lot. And it was just like a stubborn child. He didn't want to do it. He was on so much medication and, you know, adjusting to all of this post-transplant medication gives you a lot of side effects, mood swings, irritability, nausea, vomiting, lack of appetite, but he couldn't take the meds on an empty stomach. So I became a full-time mom to a toddler who didn't (laughs) want to eat or take his meds. (laughs) So I imagine that was sort of a difficult transition in your relationship. You go from partners to sort of mom of a toddler, as you said, what was that like for, how do you keep the relationship intact and healthy when you're playing sort of those two different roles? I think what really turned things around was um, it was like maybe three months post after his transplant. And I was just drained mentally, physically, emotionally. I would work all day and deal with the patients and try and encourage them to get on you know, the transplant list and what they need to do. And here I am at home trying to get through to my partner to eat and to do this. And we got to do that. And I just broke and I was hysterical crying. And I just fell into his arms and I told him, you know, I've done as much as I could do. The rest is on you. Mm. I, I need a partner. Now I'm down and I need you to help me at the very least don't fight me. You need to walk. You need to get out. You need to go back to the man I fell in love with. Wow. 
Oh my gosh. And did that change things from there on out? You know, it really did. I I think him seeing me at my most vulnerable when I'm always so strong and in control kind of kicked him back into the, all right, I got to do this. Yeah. And every day he did a little bit more and a little bit more. And five months later, he was back to work, which is, you know, made him feel like him again. Yeah. Yeah. He gets some of that, his personhood back that maybe he had been missing day to day. Yes. I mean, he was sick and tired of being sick and tired, if that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think the caregiving role is so important, especially for transplant patients? You know, it's funny that you bring that up because before all of this happened, I remember questioning, why is the caregiver role so important? I had very young, very intelligent patients that would be rejected from the transplant because they didn't have that caregiver, that support system. And it was funny that this, I mean, not funny, funny, but it kind of opened up my eyes on the role. Um, In the beginning, it's very difficult. The patient has to go and see the transplant team two to three times a week. Wow. They can't drive. Their labs are being drawn. They're on so many different types of medication and they get switched like from one visit to another. So sometimes up to three times a week. So being on top of the medication as well as his labs, as well as making them drink a lot of fluids because that's something that they stopped doing for however long they've been on dialysis. They were restricted to a certain amount of fluid intake a day. And then after the transplant, you're forced to just drink so much fluid, Mm. you know, to keep that kidney working. Yeah, yeah. And I think it wasn't until the coding that I realized if they don't have someone who's their voice what's going to happen? I mean, it is a major surgery and it is rare, but these complications do happen. Yeah. That's an excellent point that you can't do it on your own. You don't have to be Superman. Exactly. You you need someone to help you and stand in the gap for you, take care of you, all of those things. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced in caregiving? A lot of it was not being a normal couple. You know, going on vacation was out of the question um, before transplant because we were always concerned that the call was going to come in and he was going to, we were going to be out somewhere. Yeah. Chronic fatigue. He was always so tired and I felt guilty if I wanted to do something over the weekend or on his non-dialysis days when I felt he needed to rest. And then after the transplant, I was just always worried, you know, that anything can happen and I needed to feel comfortable that he was stable. And then when I felt comfortable that he was stable, the pandemic came. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And that just brings in a totally different stressful situation to an already stressful caregiving position. Right. Right, yeah. So how do you take care of yourself when you're you're carrying all of that worry and you're caring for your partner? 
You know, I have to admit that I fell in love with my best friend and I could tell him anything. You know, I have my family that when I'm at ends with, <laughs> they bring me back. You know, my sister is always one that tells me when I'm frustrated with him because he's being stubborn. She's like, remember, you almost lost him. And that just kind of shakes me back when you think of where you were and trying to picture your life without that person you love. And, you know, it makes our issues very small. Working in the medical field as well, I, I, you know, I have access to doctors and nurses and social workers. And my social worker is like my biggest advocate. Like she's always there for me. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. So what was, what did you find helpful to you during this season of caring? It sounds like you had a network to rely on. What were some of the things they did to support you or to take care of you? I think the biggest thing was reassuring me um, when I wasn't very sure on the stability of one of his labs or medication or side effects. I could ask the nephrologist, what do you think about this? Should we try this? Should we stay with this? And he would tell me he's in range. This means he's stable. You know, because he's a transplant patient, this number is never going to be perfect. So I was, I was trying to compare like a normal lab draw to someone who was transplanted. So having that really helped me. Okay. Yeah. What motivates you to keep going when things are hard and overwhelming? Like you were talking about, you know, three months post-transplant with him. What motivates you to keep getting out of bed every day and keep taking care of him? Knowing that our happily ever after is around the corner, it, it's far from being perfect, but he is the most amazing human being I have to say I've met. And I love him unconditionally. And he makes me laugh. And, you know, it. I try to hold on to those wins especially with the fear, with the COVID, did I expose him? Did he, you know, when you deal with sick patients all the time, it takes a toll on your mental health, mm. you know? Um, and I, I have, I've thought about leaving the medical part because I would never leave him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and sometimes, you know, I think about it and then I think about some of my patients that, you know, still reach out to me that I've like they say that because of me, they're where they are or, you know, like good stories. And yeah, so you kind of feel torn, like what you love to do and then what you feel like you're starting to burn out in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a great point. What do you do to prevent burnout or what advice do you have for other caregivers so they can prevent burnout? You definitely need your own support system. I think what was the hardest thing for me to remember is that if I don't take care of myself, I can't take care of him or anybody else. Yeah. And, and that's hard because I am a giving person. I give to my patients and, you know, I try and help them with whatever is going on, whether it's their emotional, physical, 
or, you know, financial issues, you know, we try and do the best we can so they don't lose hope. But then sometimes you go home and it's just the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like like it could be very exhausting. So having that support system and having some someone you can count on is going to be key to keep you from from becoming completely overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I, I think another big part for me is that I'm able to relate, especially to the caregivers of our patients, when I see them coming in and they're just so exhausted and they're just, they just feel, I know what they're feeling because I've been there and I could relate to them as well as to a patient. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, Marisol, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today about the importance of caregiving and how to how to care for the caregiver. Is there anything else you want to share with um, the listeners? No, I just really want to thank you. Being able to tell my story has really touched a lot of people and I've had a lot of people reach out to me, including yourself, mm-hmm. because like you said, you know, caregivers, we do burn out, we get overlooked, um, and we do work 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's an underpaid, underappreciated position, but it's, it's one without which we, you know, these patients wouldn't, like you said, they wouldn't be able to get transplanted. They wouldn't be able to like stay compliant. So it's such a crucial role, but it's, um, caregivers are people we need to protect and care for ourselves as well. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to Marisol Sierra for sharing her story and sage advice with us. If you're a caregiver, remember that you can't pour from an empty cup. It's important to take time for yourself, accept and ask for help, do something to relieve your stress, prioritize your physical and mental health, and connect with others who understand your experience. Visit the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois website at nkfi.org for more information about support groups and resources that can help. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, and this is The Journey Continues. Prevention is a key part of our mission at NKFI. That's why at the end of each episode, Dr. Melissa Prest offers a health or nutrition tip. Here's today's nutrition tip about fluid and hydration. Drinking enough water every day has a big impact on your health. It can prevent dehydration, help with maintaining your body temperature, allow for regular bowel movements, and help to prevent kidney stones. Water and proper hydration are necessary to lubricate and cushion your joints, protect your spinal cord and other sensitive body tissues, and help to rid your body of waste through urine, perspiration, and bowel movements. A common question is how much water should I drink in a day? That answer varies by person and health condition and is best answered by your healthcare provider. But in general, you want to make sure you are drinking enough water to produce urine that is a light color. Darker urine may indicate that you are not drinking enough. While water is the drink of choice, other beverages such as tea, coffee, and milk can also keep you hydrated. Don't forget that some of the foods we eat have a higher water content and can help you meet your fluid needs. These foods include soup, fruits, and vegetables. Wondering how you can drink more water in a day? Try a few of these tips. Carry a water bottle with you and refill it throughout the day. 
Freeze water in a freezer safe water bottle. Take one with you and then it'll thaw and you have water all day long. Choose water over sugary drinks. Opt for water when you're eating out. Serve water during meals and add a wedge of lime or lemon to your water to enhance the flavor of water and help you drink more water than you're used to. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Prest, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. The Journey Continues is brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois and sponsored by Donate Life Illinois. To learn more about kidney disease and living donation, visit www.nkfi.org. To register to become an eye, tissue, and organ donor, visit lifegoeson.com. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to and leave a review for The Journey Continues in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This podcast is produced by Rivet. To hear more great podcasts, visit rivet360.com.